you use them. T-minus three, two, one, zero, and liftoff. Welcome. We're back. Welcome to the BizDoc podcast. We got stats. We got stories. We've got how to use it and what it means to you. There's going to be a little mix in here of the approach I take, like when you're familiar with the BizDoc podcast and all that that is, when I dive in and try to show you news you can use and where you can go. So Monday, 1130 Eastern, 830 Pacific, wherever you are. Thank you for being here. Got a bunch of folks here. Looks, we got uh, Canada's here. Indiana's here. Wow. Uh, thank you, O Canada, on behalf of my great-grandparents from just the other side of Toronto. A little bit of Canadian blood in the BizDoc. Welcome, welcome, welcome. So what I want to dive into uh, this week, we're going to go into a few pieces of stats on the economy and how you use those. And then we're going to talk about application of stats because this past weekend, it was pretty cool. I had the privilege of being at the MIT Sloan Sports Media Sports Analytics Conference and uh, up in Boston, and I brought my daughter, uh, Bailey, the golf girl. She wants to study sports analytics and sports management. So I said, well, why don't you come into this geek conference and see how the sports industry is thinking about analytics and application of analytics. We all know about Moneyball. We all know about the blind side and things like that. And uh, so why don't you come with me? So she goes up with me. And by the way, she took a couple books, and Michael Lewis uh, signed those, signed a copy of Blindside for her, signed a copy of Moneyball for her. But there is a great realm of information that was up there. But one of the big things that came out was, where are you with hiring your foes first analytics person? So some of the sports leagues were kind of behind others. I mean, baseball's far ahead, as we all might imagine, and we, we've seen for years and years and years. But what I found was really interesting is how some of the other leagues were a little bit behind or how they were using it, creating a lot of disparity. There's a big piece of application for you because once you get to about 20, 25 people in your organization or you're running a small business or you're a founder of a business, a lot of people say, hey, BizDoc, when do I need to get analytics involved? And they say, well, you always need to be measuring, but to get a measurer like a, uh, a business analyst, and by the way, Patrick Bet David in his book, Next Five Moves, talks about the dialogue he and I had when his insurance company, PHP Agency, uh, headquartered in Dallas, hired their first business analyst and the impact it had on the business and what he was able to do to drive the business with advanced levels of analytics. So we're going to spend a little bit of time on that. But first, there's a couple things that happened over the weekend that I thought was pretty interesting, especially for you know, entrepreneurs, small business leaders, nonprofit leaders. And that is this ongoing weather forecast about what is the economy going to do and where we're going to go. And what was really interesting to me was listening to Larry... Summers, who used to be a very high-ranking person in terms of Fed and Treasury and everything in the Obama administration. And Larry Summers came out and said, hey, everybody's talking about maybe the Fed's going to raise a quarter point in the month of March. And I think it's March uh, 16th, 18th or something like that, Kelly. Um, and I think they're also going to have economic stats come out on that day, too. But Larry Summers was saying, hey, I think the Fed is behind the curve on raising rates. 
And it was headlines, it was on the weekend editions. I was like, wow, this, this comment's getting a lot of airplay, even in like basic uh, business news. You didn't have to dive deep into the Wall Street Journal to find it. It was like front and center over the weekend. You know, there's no Super Bowl and baseball's in spring training and March Madness hasn't quite started yet. So news like this kind of gets up above the clouds. And the point that I think what was being made there um, was that the Fed raised rates like a quarter point before the holidays, quarter point at the holidays, quarter point. So everybody keeps hearing quarter point, quarter point, quarter point. Well, guess what's been happening? You know, we've had um, unemployment has gone down and the economy is heated up in a couple areas which you might think some of those are good stats and they are at a certain level, but this overheating is driving inflation up a tick again. And the Fed has said that until inflation looks like we can get it down to 2% a year, so that in a given year, you're only experiencing 2% increase in goods and service and gasoline and eggs and everything that you buy. Until we get there, he's gonna to have to keep raising the rates because raising the rates makes money more expensive, which causes the economy to cool and slow down a little bit so that the growth is more in balance and predictable. And so Larry was saying the Fed's behind the curve, meaning, he thinks they need to raise a half a point here in March. And what I think that means as I look at it in terms of debt for business, business you may have a, a floor planning arrangement with people, you may have equity loans, you may have equipment leases you're considering. Money is gonna keep getting a little bit more expensive than it is now, and it's already fairly expensive, as we go to mid-year. And so he's looking at a half a point, meaning that the Fed will probably then go a couple quarter point raises after that. Well, all the major banks had set this target of like the national rate, the Fed rate would hit about five and a quarter percent and then maybe roll back from there as the economy cools down. They lower the interest rates, which also means mortgages will come down so the housing market could perk back up because a lot of people, mortgages, title insurance, escrow companies right now are hurting because the volume is, is very, very poor in the American real estate market. Prices haven't come down in all markets, although they're dropping precipitously in places like San Diego, San Jose, Austin, and uh, Phoenix, Phoenix, Tucson. But that stood out this weekend. And so what does it mean? I think it means that we all should be a little bit conservative about spending, a little bit cautious about debt uh, as we get into mid-year. And so I was watching that um, very carefully this weekend and I thought, wow, that's the first thing where the weather forecast hasn't changed from this kind of cloudiness that we have on interest rates, expensive money, and the economy in general to be a little bit sunnier. Now, a lot of people have jobs and I'd like to talk about that for a minute. So, hey, BizDoc, if unemployment goes down, isn't that a good thing? It is, but when unemployment drops too fast and too far in certain markets, it creates a sudden uptick in wages. Here's why. You probably heard about a lot of tech layoffs that have been happening. As a matter of fact, there was, uh, I think, 200,000 tech layoffs last year. Um, I think there's like a layoff.com or something like that. Uh, Kelly will put the, uh, the link in the chat that tracks all this. But there has already been, just this year, about 120,000 layoffs in tech. Now, on a national basis, what does that mean? Well, if you go back to 2001, what was happening is there was unemployment in tech was down so low 
that engineers were coming in at artificially high salaries. Now, everybody's got to eat and everybody's got to pay their rent and invest and do things like that, have a good life and pay off student loans if you're a young engineer. But when the prices for labor, which is the wages that you and me get, get spiked up because of a labor shortage, it creates very sudden inflation on the other side because the companies are having to pay more for the employees and it's sudden and that means they raise the prices of whatever it is they make, whether they're making software or it's ads, you know, ad networks, whatever, the prices go up. So when unemployment drops too fast, wages rise way too fast and it's an inflation trigger. So the Fed's trying to push that the other way. We want to see steady uh, wage growth in America so that people have a little bit more next year than they did last year and they can, you know, raise their family and do all the things they're going to do and pay off their student loans and what have you. But there's a lot of it that becomes interrelated. So I think for, for businesses and for those of us buying houses and doing things, it's uh, keep your raincoat on, keep your umbrella handy, and let's probably look for rates to be dropping after mid-year. But we'll see. But it's probably going to be a half a point next week, week or so, I think, uh, 16th, 18th from the Fed. And then also they're going to announce economic stats. So go take a look at that. And if you're not looking at that for your business, these are the things that you should be. So I saw that and I thought that was pretty interesting. The other thing I thought was interesting was um, not comical, but kind of ironic. You know, it was what TikTok announced. And TikTok said, hey, we're going to put a timer you know, on daily usage of about an hour. And at about an hour, young people in America aren't gonna be able to keep using, that'll be, it'll expire for the day. So what they're trying to do, they're trying to get out ahead of the whole furor over TikTok. Because on one hand, TikTok's trying to do something that you would think on the surface is good. We've seen a lot of stories about kind of the negative effect that, um, the uh, social media platforms are having on children, particularly girls when they get too much enveloped in it and they're too much putting their self-worth on likes and stuff and watching way too much of it, so obsessing over it. So the time they spend reading or developing themselves or doing homework, for the love of God, do homework, um, kind of goes away and they're overindulging in social media, not only being distracted, but it's creating, creating issues. So TikTok is trying to get out in front, ah, we're gonna put an hour timer on that. And, but there's a cheat code. You have to enter a password. So you're telling me a 17 year old girl is going to give her mom, you know, the ability to set a password on there so that at the end of a uh, hour, she can't use TikTok anymore. It's off the air until, until tomorrow. You know what? That cheat code, kids are going to figure it out. They're going to be using, okay, my parents' anniversary, my mom's birthday, my dad's birthday, my birthday. And they're going to figure out, and they're going, to, they're going to basically hack this code, and they're going to keep using it. But why is TikTok doing this? And I was thinking about it. They're trying to look good because there's a lot of states out there that are already talking about banning it. And, and by the way, you know, uh, Fresher.com had a very funny article. It was like, how to get around the one-hour TikTok limit. So there's how-tos that are already online. But what TikTok's really trying to avoid is the federal government and people. There's this whole China spying side of TikTok, but then there's this whole other side as states are already taking steps. 
hey, we're going to ban it. Um, there are certain colleges and universities you cannot access TikTok on any of the Wi-Fi networks. So a lot of universities have a free Wi-Fi for the students. If you're a student there, you can use the Wi-Fi and you have a way to get into that and use it and through your student code. And they have a nice Wi-Fi net throughout um, the campus. And now campuses have said, universities have said, we're, not, we're going to block access to TikTok. You will not be able to access TikTok on campus. And that was a re response to Chinese spying and fearing that maybe through the app that bad actors could get through an, ind an individual student's TikTok app and access the uh, networks that are on campus. And so they wanted to you know, block that. But I think this isn't a, you know, TikTok's not the first one to do it. You know, you see companies trying to do these things where they say, hey, we want to look better. And we want things to be, you know, a little bit more in our favor. So there's controversy, so we got to look good in the face of controversy. And it kind of felt to me that it was um, uh, less about, uh, you know, being a good citizen and more about trying to get in front of legislation and stuff that's coming at them. Um, that's kind of how I felt about that. But those are two stories over the weekend that kind of jumped out at me. You know, TikTok puts a time limit on it, and there's already websites up there that say, here's the TikTok hack in case your parents are putting you on the clock, which is ridiculous. And so that kind of, kind of, kind of shocking. You know, it's the, when you, when you do something, you know, like that, you know, invariably, at times you end up someplace you don't want to end up. You know, it, it, and I think what parents are trying to do is they want ways to keep their kids safe, but what kids want is access to it. So barring a larger um, wall that goes up or TikTok going off the air being highly moderated in some way by the government, it's still going to be here. And it's relationship with your kids and a dialogue with your kids to keep them from using what they shouldn't be using because you're giving them really good feedback on it. But anyway. The other thing I saw over the weekend, uh, enough about TikTok, is um, you know spring training was out there, and I, I'm a baseball guy, and I like to kind of dive into that. And one of the things I dove into was just the amazing, outside of the fact that I was at a sports analytics conference for the weekend with uh, Bailey the Golf Girl, and that was I saw something come up from the Atlanta Braves. The Atlanta Braves, remember, they won the World Series back in 2021. They got a new stadium. They moved to the um, northern part of Atlanta. Apparently, it's been very successful. So they have everything there that you would think that they're going to be making a nice profit, running a very nice uh, you know, and successful team. And they just gave their fans that are there buying season tickets and all that, and they had that new stadium up there. They won the World Series in 2021. Um, uh, and what was interesting is I saw that the Braves holding company posted that they had revenue of $588 million. That's half a billion dollars. Um, and that, that's pretty significant. But they indicate that the profit fell 36%. I'm like, well, wait a minute. You know, you could see profits falling maybe a small market team or a team that hasn't been, you know, Pittsburgh Pirates, you know, team that hasn't been to the, you know, playoffs in a long time. You know, and I saw the um, whether it was Babylon Bee or the Onion that said that uh, PNC Park Pittsburgh demands better team or it threatens to close, as if the stadium had a life of its own. I thought that was a funny headline. But you would, you would expect maybe profits to be falling in a place like Pittsburgh. What was really interesting about this was $588 million, but a 36% drop 
in profitability. And that was, so they were still profitable, but they had a lot less profit because they said player salaries. So in other words, bigger salaries went up for free agents. So those, hey, they did well. So those players got a raise and that's the way it works. But they also said that retail operating costs were, were significantly higher last year and it caught them by surprise. Guess what, ladies and gentlemen, that's inflation. So you know what the Braves are gonna be doing? Go take a look at hats, jerseys, hot dogs, and tickets. I predict you're gonna see those go up for the Braves, and that's kind of a sign of a regular business. They're having to respond to inflation, respond to what's going on. But I thought it was really amazing that a, an example of a franchise so successful and had such a great year. You would think that that's the year they get extra profit. People are buying, hey, world championship hats, world championship shirts and jerseys. There's a whole marketing arm that goes out and it runs at high speed when you win a championship. And then that next year where they're celebrating the championship of 21, so 22 is where they're celebrating the year all, all year long. The players get their rings, there's special nights, there's all things going on, and they announce, yeah, it was good, and we made $588 million top line, but our, um, unfortunately, uh, our profits dropped by 36%. So now this year, there's gonna be a little bit of inflation for people that wanna go enjoy the Braves. And um, it's the, there you have it, it all matters. It's not just inflation being something that the White House will spin or is on the news. There it is, coming home to roost for you. Uh, a thing that needs some inflation, this next item, and um, Kelly, I think I've got a link for this. You can find the Pew Research link I sent you on, yeah, Pew Research Center. So this kind of flipped me out a little bit. Um, what's amazing is this here, and she's gonna have the chart up. Uh, I don't know, can we show that? Are we allowed to show that? Mm -hmm. Okay, good. So the gender gap as as the husband of a teacher who is a woman and the father of two young women who are entering the workforce uh, not too long from now, just a few years, as Bailey's actually looking at colleges right now, finishing her junior year, is the gender pay gap in the United States has not closed meaningfully in 20, and I'm not gonna use the word, effing years. <laughs> and if you take a look at here, it hasn't closed meaningfully. So U.S. women are still earning about 82% of men. And this shocks me probably because of kind of where I've been. Uh, Patrick Bet David is an entrepreneur, a very dedicated entrepreneur. And I'm proud to say that the time I spent working with him at PHP Agency, the women that were life insurance agents, the men that were life insurance agents, everybody made the same thing to the penny. There is no difference. The only difference was who could sell and who couldn't, and who would drive and who couldn't. But all of our wages were locked in and they were equal. So when you work inside something like this and then you suddenly see a Pew Research study that comes out and does kind of a re-review of something, this, this frankly kind of pissed me off a little bit. And what was even more stark about it, other than the 82% difference, is it was different across races. And um, on the PBD podcast about um, uh, a week and a half ago, you know, we had the wonderful um, book that was written 
by the, the woman who escaped uh, North Korea. Yes. Uh, and she talked about um, her experience, and she made a comment that in some places, to her, this was her speaking in the U.S., if you were Asian, you were treated as if you were white. Was that, I wanna make sure I get that right, Kelly. That was her kind of comment. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm being careful here because it was her opinion. But I dove into these stats. So that's what I'm remembering from a week and a half ago from a guest on the PBD podcast. Yonmi Park. Yep, and she wrote a, a book. What's the name of that book she wrote? Um. We'll get that in a second. The Asian women are only at 93%. So it should be equal. But Asian women are at 93% of what men make, and this is all men, average in the U.S. Caucasian, or otherwise classified as white women, were at 83%. Black women were at 70%, and Hispanic women were at 65%. And that really shocked and disappointed me to see the disparity. But I also see there, with the, with the Asian women, kind of a look back into the comment that, that she made that she felt that, you know, at, at times if you're Asian, you're treated as white. But what does this mean for us? Let me tell you, the small business people are the engine of America. We are building jobs, we are getting things done, and we shouldn't take a Pew Research study or Yomi Park uh, being on the PBD podcast and talking about things that they're experiencing to say, are we double checking that everywhere in our companies and in our departments and anything that we can influence that this, this wage gap is not there, that it's equal. You're a director of marketing. Are you a good one? How long have you been a director of marketing? Okay, here's our scale, that's your pay. And the fact that this is still out there and it's on a national basis says that it's still happening more often than it's not. And so for all of us, you know, the opportunity is in our lap to take the first step on this. And as a man with, with daughters that are coming into the workplace, I'm, I'm hoping, and I'm gonna be an increasing voice about this, that there's a crescendo of re-review in America to take a look to say, hey, can you do the job? Do you do a good job? Two questions, that's it. And then here's the wage scale. And in a modern day where a lot of people identify in various ways, step back and say, I don't care how you identify, can you do the job and can you do it well? This is what you earn for this job. This job pays this. It's not that this job pays this for you or for you. This job pays this. You know, I'm hoping to see that. And so for what it's worth, um, that's, that's my feeling on this one. And I think all of us in small business can carry the torch and step forward and look around and make sure it's there. And if you're working for somebody else, you can be the voice and saying, hey, you know what? In my department, I've got this thing here. I think, you know, we need to, let's make some adjustments here and let's make sure that, that this is fair across the board. So those are the things across the, uh, the weekend that kind of, uh, you know, popped up to me. You know, women in wages, the Atlanta Braves somehow being a championship team, but inflation's hitting them too and um, you know, the, the interest rates that are coming. So now to, off to Boston. So we're at the uh, incredible conference on sports analytics, the Sloan Sports Analytics Conference, and we were in, really enjoyed ourselves. Bailey met a lot of cool people and we saw a lot of cool presentations. And one of them that we saw was, was 
pretty interesting because it had direct applicability to everything else. And the guy that led it, really, really clever guy, um, wrote a very cool book. His name is uh, Ben Alomar, Benjamin Alomar. So if you search for Benjamin Alomar and his book on sports analytics, um, you, know, you know, he calls it the guide for coaches, managers, and other decision makers. Okay, that's like you and me. So I walked into this conference and suddenly I felt like, wow, I feel like I'm at a seminar for analytics that even the small business uh, people in this country can, can look at and appreciate. And what was very interesting about that was this. It turns out that analytics is still not a hire. It's not in the building. Um, at organizations, say at about 25 to $50 million, they're looking at once you reach there, you know, where is analytics represented? Are you the founder doing it? Do you have somebody in finance? And the answer is usually no. That at that number, you still have a kind of a constrained number of employees, and you're still trying to make a decision of hire an analytics person. And this guy gave a very, very interesting talk that I'll describe here around the NBA draft. So he was working for a certain team, and I won't, I won't say the team. Um, and at the table, there is the general manager, the assistant general manager, himself, who was an outside analytics consultant, and basically the owner. And they were looking at the top four picks of the NBA draft, and I believe they had the first pick. And they're trying to decide. And they had come to a point where they didn't have agreement. And they were doing the following. They said, okay, you have 100 points in front of you. What percent probability do you think each of these four young men that we could potentially draft as our number one pick will be a hit, will absolutely be a star? Okay, and what percent do you put on him being a bust and the rest is in the middle? So they, they ignored the middle and they really wanted to know on strong opinion, what percent out of 100 do you think he's going to be a big time player, an all-star? And what do you think he's going to be a bust? And so I think it was the general manager had 55% star and 30% bust. The assistant general manager weighed in. He was a little bit closer between the two. Remember, done that up to 100 because they're leaving out the middle. Analytics thought this, and analytics only had um, uh, one of them projected at 20% or more to be a star, showing that a lot of times emotion was over, um, overshadowing logic in taking a look at what they think players' attributes will and carrying the college game into the pros and being successful. So they go down all this, and suddenly the discussion apparently went to kind of gut feel. And so they were, had a lot of you know, intense discussions about you know, what are the odds that this carries over? Well, what if, what if his play is like this? How is he going to succeed there? And they, were, they had a really tough time choosing between all of them. And the, what they came up to, they ultimately came and made a pick, which turned out it was a very weak draft pick, and it was one of the worst first-round picks in the history of basketball. Um, and I, actually, I kind of grew up in this era, and I think one of the worst picks was Len Bias. Um, without sufficient background check and everything, they didn't know that 
Apparently he partied pretty hard and unfortunately, two days after he was drafted by the Boston Celtics, he uh, died of a cocaine overdose. So their first round pick, the, I think the second pick of the, uh, of the draft, and unfortunately he, he passed away uh, partying with friends, doing things you're not supposed to. But this was actually, a, uh, probably could call it the second first round pick in history. And they looked at it and they realized they were trying to give data a seat at the table. And they treated everybody as an equal voice and gave data a seat at the table, as, as, as if data and analytics has an opportunity to vote on the decision. Then you have yourself, your assistant GM, and your GM if you're the owner. And what was pushed forward, which I thought was very profound, he said, no, no, it can't be that way. Everybody can have their perspective. But data has to be on the table or be the table so that everybody looks at the same data and then everybody applies and, and puts it to it where the owner is feeling this way based on the interviews and everything they saw at March Madness where the young man played and the GM is thinking about this and coachability and things like this. But the data is at the table, old school thinking. The data is on the table and it is the table so that everybody says, well, let me challenge that. And let's go back. You know, does the data say that? Does the data, does the data indicate that this is what it should be? Does the data support this? What's our hypothesis here? And so they went through that. And I thought it was really intriguing the way they, um, the way he put it together. And so um, I'm hoping to recommend this book to a couple companies that um, I'm on the board of and I'm involved with because although it's a sports analytics book, it really talks about the first step you take as a small business person bringing data into the organization. And the applicability of it, let's get into how and, and why we do that. You know, at PHP, I came and I talked to Pat and I said, you've got a lot of great data because you built some really wonderful systems. PHP had some early systems that they designed and they worked with some outside vendors and had some very good systems that were bringing in a certain level of data. But they didn't have a data warehouse yet, they didn't have things, but they had a hell of a lot more than insurance distribution companies their size had. And I said, Pat, I really believe we need a business analyst. A business analyst can come in here and look at some of this in different ways. And the point isn't to say, wow, isn't that cool? Or to make more charts for your monthly sales meeting or better charts or better looking PowerPoint to sit down with your board. No, it really is how do you move from just having data and being able to chart it to make it actionable. So there's my first point for you is if if you're already collecting data in your business and you're 5 million, 10 million, think about a business analyst. And even if that's like part-time and you, and you have an intern from local college and once you're able to afford that position, putting it in and make the goal of the position to understand what data is saying so that you can take your gut instincts, your observation and your relationships with all your people and augment it with that data to make decisions for the business such as, hey, my nephew is here. I'll give you a great example. I got a tweet over the, over the weekend and it was, well, how much do I spend on you know, SEO? 
You know, my nephew helped us with our website and I'm paying my nephew and he's doing Google AdWords. Well, I didn't know what industry they're in. And so obviously their nephew learned some things, felt strongly about it and talked to his uncle who owned a business into this. But I'm looking at it as like, wait a minute. You know, if you do that because your nephew really understands your business and has dove in with you, that's great. But if you're doing that simply because, oh, I think this is gonna be kind of cool. And now I've got some advanced you know, charts. And now I've got SEO. What does SEO do for you? Does your customer set depend on SEO and finding you in your town or in your industry? If not, and most of it comes through outside salespeople the old fashioned way, then what are you paying for SEO for? Understand why you're doing it. But the very first step there is putting someone in place and getting to decision grade information. And if you do have an e-commerce arm for the business, now SEO makes sense. What do I spend? What do I not spend? When and how much? And having fact-based decisions. The next point was always looking back at decisions. And I said, you know, that's a, that's a great management point. That's a pretty obvious management point uh, for me, at least, when I look at it. And I say, you know, always having, you know, uh, a look back. But what was interesting about it when data is not just a voice at the table, it is the table. It's like, okay, folks, let's look at last week. What happened? And seeing the exact outcomes based on what you did. Hey, I gave you 500, not 200 to spend on our SEO and to bull some leads for us. How many leads did we get? Well, roughly the same as a week ago. Well, wait a minute. So why did we double what we spent, even though it's only a couple hundred dollars, but I don't have more leads. And looking back at every decision, these could be pricing decisions. You know, I'm fond of saying on the uh, BizDoc case studies, so whether you're operating a t-shirt company in Berlin or a technology company in the United States, I hope I lift you better than I found you. Those two things apply. Whatever industry you're in, it's not relevant, the industry. What's only relevant is what knobs do you need to turn to make a success, whether it's the next level of sales or understanding what to put in the product based on what's being bought today. And a business analyst gives you that. The second step that happened is, and I'll take you back uh, to Patrick, is when we found the first couple um, related datas where we had this piece of data over here and then this piece of data, and we were able to put them together on a chart, X over Y, and plot the position of all of the agency offices for PHP. So he looked at them, and then we overlaid, okay, what is the relative cash flow, meaning the commission revenue being earned by that office? And on this axis, we were able to correlate where it was. He instantly went out to the field and says, hey, if you're not learning from these guys in Southern California, you're gonna be disadvantaged because here's where they are here and here, and then there's cash flow. And he shows it to people, they see the picture, and they need no more convincing. Well, I wanna increase the cash flow of my agency office, so I see what I need to optimize. Because there's many things in insurance that you could focus on. You could focus on what type of policies you sell. You could focus on, do you only focus on life insurance? Do you also focus on other products called, like final expense? You could also focus on, do I just work with my experience agents or do I spend half with my experience agents and half developing my green agents? We're, because there's only you know, 24 hours in a day and the average entrepreneur is working 12 of those 
at least, you know, the ones that are all the timers. And if you follow uh, Pat, you know the difference between a part-timer, a full-timer, and an all-the-timer is. And they're looking at, where do I spend those hours? And it all comes together. And this was a business analyst that back in the day, uh, I think we were paying this business analyst about forty-five dollars to $50,000. But we had data there, and we started putting it together, and we had decision-grade things. So if you've got 26 people at your company, and it's you know, $4 or $5 million, you, know, you may be surprised that you're not too small to think about part-time person that would be there. And that book by Benjamin Alomar is a great resource for that. Um, by the way, as he talks about the NBA drafts, things got better and better. And guess what? Picks got better. Uh, and what they learned that year, they immediately applied it. But um, they, were, they were on the leading edge. And it shows that the first time you try something, sometimes you get it wrong. And people go back to trusting guts and instincts. Uh, but that was um, very, very interesting. The other thing that was interesting at the Sports Analytics Conference was just how much people were still resistant. And I'm not going to name names because there was commissioners there and people there, and I, I don't want to out anybody. But there were sports, you know, we know baseball is up to its ears in, in analytics and player development and teams like Tampa Bay, the Dodgers, and Boston. You can find articles all over the place talking about just how much they invest and how much success they've had and what they've done with them. But there's still a lot of, um, uh, you know, sports leagues and organizations that are really not exploiting the full power and availability of data and analytics. And so the same thing is true in, in businesses. Um, up and down the hallways there, there were um, Sloan uh, MBA students, and that's uh, Sloan is the MBA school at MIT, and they had these thesis, and some of them were like data analytics and just completely wild, you know, deep dive research studies that, you know, I said, okay, this can be very interesting if you figure that out, but how does the average general manager in that league going to use that information? And sometimes there wasn't a, a clear answer. But what was surprising was how many, some of the teams in sports leagues weren't doing it yet. And so here you have an opportunity to increase the number of people coming to your, uh, you, to your games because you got a winning team and you're doing well and you have an opportunity to do things so that your general manager can build rosters differently, build rosters better, and put a better product on the field and then charge you money for the tickets and the hats and you know, all the concessions for the dedicated um, you know, fans. But we're not doing it yet. And I sat there and I thought, and I says, wow, I wonder how many businesses that are under $25 million, but that have data or meaningful size, are also not doing that. And I wonder how many people, maybe you're going to hear this today and say, you know what, we need to take the first step. You know, you want to talk more about it, you know, you can find Patrick and myself, by the way, on Minect, um, which is an app that uh, was, um, you know, Patrick's brainchild, this amazing app that uh, allows people to get together and connect by the minute. It's that, or you can even reach out to the, uh, you know, the Bet uh, David Consulting Sales Organization, and we could talk with you about it. Or you could start with um, Ben Alomar's uh, book. All good places to start to take your first step with that. And if you're not doing it yet, I'm, 
I walked away with eyes open because I thought everybody in sports was doing this. And I assumed that the biggest thing I was going to get out of the uh, weekend was that um, uh, Bailey Girl was going to uh, have a great perspective on analytics and sports in an industry that she's going to be in. But really, it was um, some really interesting findings that went even beyond that. We have got. So, um, I'll give you a couple quotes. Uh, one of the guys that was there, uh, Shane Battier, uh, came out of came out of Duke, I believe, and then played with the Miami Heat, won a world, uh, won a you know a champ, a basketball championship. Almost called it world championship. They call it the world championship of baseball, but in basketball, they won the commissioner's trophy. And what Shane was talking about is how he was very anxious to use it as a player. And there were other players there that were less anxious. And I looked at it and I said, the same curiosity that's in him to use the analytics to make himself better that he showed, I want to see in people that are in organizations that I'm a part of. I want to see that curiosity. And he was asked, tell us about the leaders you work with that were using data and analytics or were putting it to good worth that would lead you. And he said, look, the great leaders connect you to a future you do not know. And I thought that was a profound leadership quote. Great leaders connect you to a future you do not know. And in my case, once they put that in front of me, I was a curious guy and I just wanted to apply it and get better and do better things. And I sat back and I said, that's a huge lesson for people that are hiring people, whether it's in sales or product or own finance group. Curious people that want that. I want that data, give me that. And they're also, it also helps that Shane's a highly competitive guy in a highly competitive sport at the time. And so that's it. Let me see. Cassie's asking on chat, what's the name of the book again? We gave it to her, The Sports Analytics, A Guide for Coaches, Managers, and Other Decision Makers. And we also shared a Yonmi Park's title as well. Yep, it's got there in the chat. Awesome. Yep. So there's a, um, after the conference, I was digging in to some uh, news stories, and I found one that was highly, highly relevant to um, the whole analytics weekend I was experiencing. And it was um, Stripe. Stripe said they were cutting their valuation to 50 building, 50 building, 50, <laughs> can't even talk. Um, 50 billion after they had these uh, fundraising issues. So Stripe's trying to go out and they're trying to go public. And they were having some trouble trying to go public. So then they said, well, maybe we'll just go out and raise another $50 billion because it's hard to go public. Then they came back and said that the um, value of the company, it was dropping. And now they've even dropped the value of the company another 10% to $50 billion. And so I was kind of shocked by all this, so I kind of dug into it. And what was interesting is there's a bunch of challenges that they're having getting financing. And this, this applies to any, any business that's going out for fundraising. When you grow at a high rate and you're growing 30%, 40%, 50%, and you can't reasonably project that forward in a convincing way, or say, hey, I was growing 50% a year in my early years. Now I'm growing 20% a year. Let me prove it to you and show you why. Because most investors want to invest in two things, a growing company and EBITDA. 
profit. So if the company's growing, the EBITDA is going to be growing. So a growing company and EBITDA. And they want to be able to look back and say, as all that EBITDA grows, someone's going to come along and buy the company. I sell my shares. Boom. That's how an investor makes their money. And Stripe was out there, and apparently they've been unable to convince people of the strength of the growth that's going to be there. And they're facing a couple things. And one of them apparently was, you know, a little bit of a slowdown in e-commerce. Well, in 2020, e-commerce was steaming along because where were we? We were on the couch buying stuff on Amazon. Even peanut butter was being delivered. I know because I picked up a really heavy box one day at my own front door. I said, BizDoc Babe, what is in the box? Oh, there's probably peanut butter and salsa. I opened it up. It was salsa and peanut butter. And I said, what did you pay for shipping on this? She goes, Amazon Prime, baby. And I'm like, wow. So Amazon somewhere. And she said, but that, I got that peanut butter for less than I would get it you know, at the store. And I'm like, I was kind of shocked by all this. So what was interesting to me in looking at this, e-commerce was down. The econ economic headwinds were there. And a lot of people asked me about fundraising. And so I sat there and I said, wow. So even Stripe, and Stripe is here to stay. Stripe is like PayPal. It's a new entrant in FinTech, giving a lot of benefits to many people. If you're buying stuff, um, e-commerce from various places, you'll see at the end, it says check out with Stripe. So it's like PayPal, it's everywhere and it's being used quite a bit. As a matter of fact, full disclosure, and this is not a, this is not a, uh, uh, you know, uh, a promo, but Stripe does power the commerce engine that's inside Minect. And it's because it's global and it's super secure, which was two things that we wanted for all the Stripe experts and users that might use it. Wanted to be super secure for the expert and for the user because there's no reason for us to invent it ourselves, um, especially when you've got like a really secure solution out there. So Stripe has got all these benefits and it's got all this market traction, but it is coming up to a big fundraising that it thought it was going to do by going public and it can't get it done because of what's happening with um, e-commerce and a couple of the areas of the business where they're trying to prove some cost dynamics. And so there is a perfect example for you and me. If you're going out looking for half a million dollars or a million dollars to expand your business a little bit to go to the next level, being able to prove the growth to an investor and to show them that your profit or EBITDA is going to be growing, that's all that matters. If you can describe your business in a quick elevator pitch of less than two minutes, number one, and then number two, you can turn around and then say, and I'm growing at this percent and this is my profit. Most investors I know, like myself, Patrick, and other angel investors that are in, in in our, our world, and our network, we're gonna look at that and say, tell me more. So you're growing and you're profitable and you're able to prove to me that the growth line is gonna continue and you're measuring your business. That's all it takes to make a compelling story. Now the other trick is finding investors that like that business, they like that industry, they're comfortable with that business in that industry, they know something about it. People that own nothing about e-commerce are probably not likely to invest in an e-commerce company. People that understand a market space a little bit, or as I like to say, can get smart in a hurry, those are gonna be, be your investors. But what you're seeing there, 
from um, Stripe is the same thing you're going to see, you know, other places, even if you're trying to raise half a million dollars for your own e-commerce company or, or an online services company. So one more here before we, before we wrap. Every week here, I promise we're going to uh, be about an hour, and I'm going to run through all these things and find information for you. You can find me on Twitter. Please send tweets if you see something that's interesting, something you think is worth talking about, a perspective. And also, you know, the folks here at Valuetainment, and this is brought to you by Valuetainment. Thank you very much to all the Valuetainment team that's put this on the air. Is we're going to be reaching out to CEOs to get perspectives of what went well and what they learned and when they learned it. Because I think learning from people who have run over bumps in the road is the best learning that you could, you could apply. And so, AKA profit. Yep. So somebody asked, do you have a business analyst on staff? Yeah, I think I talked about that. You know, PHP agency is, uh, has got like a couple people now that are in business and analytics. And it's like a little organization that rolls right up to the CTO as PHP has grown big. And there are people at, um, at Valuetainment here that are looking at statistics every week on viewership, things like that, as we work with sponsors. And they want numbers from us. And we predict our future growth and the things that we're going to be doing. Look at one more. A lot of people like the studio. Thank you very much. Appreciate all that. And the um, oh yeah, take you through one more thing here that um, that bubbled up this morning. It says, "Is is there?" a good time to start a business or is now a time not to start a business? My parting shot is that usually economic downturns, there can be a lot of opportunities to start a business. Make sure you kept your powder dry and you've got your living expenses and you've got things lined up, but a lot of times there's opportunities. Going back to 2000, 2001, and you can look up that there was a serious economic uh, belch that the U.S. economy had there, and at that time, that's when Jamdat Mobile was founded. And the first mobile games company for phones, I had a privilege to be part of the other seven guys that were you know, the founding crew. And sometimes during economic tough times is, is a great time to start a business. Again, protect your family, protect you know, your ability to, to make a living, and you, know, you gotta save your pennies and be ready to do it. But also, um, another example I can give you, PHP was founded in 2009. And as you know, 2008, 2009 was a tough economic time. But Pat put his life savings out there, and that was the, uh, the seeds of PHP at that time. Um, and uh, there's a benefit. Uh, he looked at it, and you know, tough economic times, also times where sometimes people turn to new careers or you know, consider you know, yeah, life insurance and those products. So he was looking at all that when he did it. So sometimes tough economic times are the time to start it. Just don't get hurt. Make sure that you've got enough money to start the business. You've got money to keep yourself going. But fortune favors the bold. And that is, and that is our show this week. Every Monday, going to be here 1130 Eastern Time, 830 Pacific Time. Stats, stories, what it means for you, the small business person. You can find me at Tom Ellsworth on Twitter. Uh, the links will be here, and also uh, PBD Podcast. You know, I'm I guest on that. You know, 
from time to time, and I love the opportunity to sit in with Pat and the great guests that we have. A whole bucket of valuetainment content here, and of course, I've mentioned Minect, great app that you can go out and connect with experts, maybe answer you the question you need as you start your business or you build what you're doing. I'm Tom Ellsworth, the BizDoc, and as I like to say, I hope I left you better than I found you. <laughs>